Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back. For today's episode, we're going to hear part seven of an ongoing series about a musical escape room. So here's The Golden Sparrow, which tells the fictional world of Elias Franklin and a mysterious musical lock. Part 7 I spent the next half hour searching the main chamber for features or devices that I might have failed to previously notice. Having done a more complete inventory, I focused on several items of interest. On the wall, opposite of the box on the pedestal, there hung two pictures whose import was veiled to me, but that appeared to bear on my current circumstance. The first was a stylized representation of an optical spectrum with the colors ordered in bands from left to right, violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. Each of the vertical bands started at full saturation at the bottom of the painting and faded into black from bottom to top. Across the top, the print was titled Tambral Spectrum. As each color faded to black, a ghostly script presented a word printed vertically, and each color was associated with a different word. All but one appeared to be some form of romance language, and I did not recognize them. Harmonics, Consordini, Tremolo, Ponticello, Spiccato, Colegno, Pizzicato. I recognized the term harmonics, and surmised that all were somehow related to music. However, I had never seen the word timbral before. The whole seemed to be a system of musical nomenclature connected to optical colors, but nothing in this painting made it overtly evident. The other image was a triptych whose contents were unambiguous. From left to right, each panel featured a picture and some technical information about the three instruments that the players in the chamber held. The leftmost panel was the violin, and it bore some facts along with some musical notation that appeared to show the range of notes that it could produce. Next to the violin was the viola, and finally on the right panel was the cello. The three panels clearly were connected to the three players, but I was not sure what was encoded. I looked in vain at the middle panel to see if it had encoded the number that unlocked the first part of the Grand Corral. I did not see the number 18 anywhere, and my suspicion that this triptych would not directly solve any of the puzzles was deepened. However, I had an intuition that this hanging would inform some future action that would lead to my escape. As I considered what part of the puzzle that these images illustrated, I went back to view the placards in front of the players, and it was one that the cellist stand bore that offered an insight. It read, Three Tambors for Three Virtues. Somehow, the image with the color spectrum was somewhere connected to these virtues. The painting's title indicated something called a timbral spectrum, which led me to observe that each of the words that was printed over color must be a so-called timbre. With the seven colors of the spectrum thus related to seven timbres, I wondered if there might be some clue back in Franklin's office that might connect a color somehow to a virtue, 
if I could navigate from a virtue to a color, I could then connect that virtue to a timbre. The placard that dictated three virtues narrowed the field of connections I needed to make, but at this point I could not determine what these three virtues might be, and I stood even less chance to connect them to a color. If I were hoping to unlock another part of the corral from the cellist, I needed to find something that would connect a virtue to a color. The triptych of instrument information that hung to the right offered no help. I headed back into Franklin's office to work my way through the papers and other discoveries I had made in his desk. Perhaps a seemingly unimportant document would have additional insights buried in it. Returning to Franklin's desk, I thumbed through the newspaper articles and made no new discovery. As I set them down, I saw the strip of paper that had the system of holes in ordered lattice and picked it up. Although I had failed to note this when I first found it, I now saw that in small print along the skinnier width of the long strip was a series of symbols that matched those that were engraved underneath the slot in the box in the other chamber. It was with this recognition that I realized the possible purpose of this strange item. It was roughly the same width as my memory of the slot, and I interrupted my search for virtue to bring it back into the chamber. It was precisely the same width, and I fed the strip into the slot with a gentle pressure. I met with immediate success as some machinery internal to the box gently seized the inserted end and started to draw the strip in. As it did, I heard the glistening sounds of a music box as the paper fed into the slot. I looked to see if the paper would emerge as it was greater in length than the small box could house, and I found the inserted end emerging out the back of the box as the notes played. To my untrained ear, it sounded like this music interlude began in the middle of a phrase, almost like a story begun in mid-sentence. As the paper made its journey through the box, I gathered it on the other side and re-examined it. On the opposite end of the strip, in a small font, it read, Two of Four. That explained why the music produced by the strip appeared to be out of place. It seemed that there were three other similar strips to be recovered, and that they must be fed into the slot in the correct order. This is how the machine could be made to sing, per the instructions on the violinist's stand. Flush with the excitement of serendipity, I had a renewed hope of working through the maze set out by Elias Franklin. Having exhausted the desk of its contents, I now turned my attention to other nooks and crannies in his office. I was looking for anything related to virtues, and I was looking for three other strips of paper with a lattice of holes so that I could make the machine in the chamber sing. I went back to the coat stand by the now-sealed office door and gave the frock coat a thorough exam looking for any evidence of a heavy strip of paper to match the dimensions of the one I found in the desk, 204. There was nothing. I rehung the coat and took the top hat off its hook. It was a gentleman's hat, and there was nothing on the outside apart from the ribbon. I flipped it to inspect the inside and ran my hand around above the brim. It was here my fingers detected a piece of paper underneath the thick silk liner. 
I now arrived at an agonized moment. The liner was completely attached, and there was no fastener to remove it. I would have to cut through it to extract what I suspected was my sought-after prize. Taking a letter opener from the desk, and with a moment of anticipatory remorse, I used the tip of the implement to work a hole through the silk. The crime complete, I worked my fingers into the opening and extracted another of the musical strips from within the crown of the hat. Four of four. Halfway there. Having left a small regret with the damaged top hat, I turned to the bookshelf. As I mentioned before, there were three sets of volumes on disparate topics. I determined that if any books should contain hidden mysteries, it would be the writings of great thinkers. I took each book, one at a time, and quickly rifled through the pages to see if there was a loose document nestled among their leaves. This took a bit of time, as there were many volumes, and yielded futility. I started into the volumes on the next shelf, a compendium of reviews of musical performances in New York. Grabbing the first, I had a flash of insight into why Elias Franklin might have been so interested in the musical comings and goings of New York. Knowing his response to the arrival of the Golden Sparrow in Fort Collins, I posited that he had a duty, imposed either by self or other, to guard some occult wisdom that could be expressed in music. These volumes had been reviewed multiple times, and I now suspected that it was not for its documentary value that Franklin had it on this bookshelf. My trip through these heavy volumes yielded another nugget of treasure. Nestled within the New York Post review of an 1891 performance of Wagner's Lohengrin, I discovered another strip of paper, one of four. Was the story of this opera a matter of particular import to Mr. Franklin, or was it an accident that this strip slumbered among the review of the celebrated musical telling of the story of the Night of the Swan? I read through the essay, it was quite lengthy by modern standards, but I did not find an obvious connection. However, the story of Lohengrin, as told by Wagner, is a celebration of a mystical defender who carries an unspeakable secret. Perhaps this tale had more than merely aesthetic appeal to him. I didn't have the luxury of leisure of mind at the moment, being so close to acquiring the final scrap of paper that would help my locksmithing proceed. The final row of books, the Proceedings of the London Congress of High Cartography. This was an arcane and voluminous body of material in testament to Robert's rules of order and various and sundry claims on the importance of committees long dissolved. The pages themselves held nothing, although there were many lofty claims of noble purpose and sacred trust, etc. One phrase did recur at a more than incidental interval the sacred virtues. From the pages of this record, these sacred virtues composed a precious bundle of philosophical cargo. They were often referenced with the sense that the mere mention of them would end a dispute or resolve a conundrum. However, I never saw them enumerated. Throughout the proceedings, the phrase took on a totemic quality that made it seem that the statement carried more weight than the constituent elements. One participant in this grand congress, Sir Oswald Etheridge, appeared to have an office particularly devoted to them. His title was Doctor of Virtues, and his duties appeared to be connected to stewardship of the same. 
in the midst of many grandiloquent lectures, I noted that the following passage had been underlined. Sir Oswald rose and shared a poetic reflection on the sacred virtues and how he saw them in evidence on a recent visit to the African continent. He shared his work and then opened the ears of the delegates to receive further instruction on them. His winsome speech and earnest devotion moved the room, and many cheers and affirmations went up from the crowd. Of all the various bureaucratic labyrinths laid out in this transcript, I could not figure out why this passage would have been noteworthy, as it was not obvious to me, as an outsider, why his words were any less forgettable than the rest of the recorded activity. Flipping through the remainder of the volumes, there were no other specific passages that stood out, and I did not discover the final strip of encoded music that I had there sought. I had been sitting on the floor in front of the bookshelf as my quest had outlasted my stamina for standing. I was gratified at the profit from my quest, but still vexed to guess where the final fragment of paper might rest. I put my hand on the shelf to aid my rise, and it was in this moment that another pair of scales dropped from my eyes. Directly above the bookshelf had been a framed text, and I had completely disregarded its content after my first consideration. It now hung staring, literally inches from my face, with a testimony of its overlooked relevance to my goal. The title, The Sacred Savannah, by Oswald Etheridge. Sir Oswald's instruction to the High Cartography Congress was shouting to me from inches away. I reread the poem with renewed interest. The Sacred Savannah by Oswald Etheridge On the sun-yellowed grass of the plain, Whose yearning and crying for rain, I look, and behold, silent virtue displayed Wisdom in waiting, when blessed or dismayed. As she eats her next meal in the grass, the lioness watches me pass, her teeth tinctured red. Lying over her prize, power unequaled, her feast conquered, lies. And now Helios drives to the end, where eventide colors will blend. The radiant dusk of eternity speaks violet wonders for any who seeks. In the matter of a few words, I now saw the marriage of virtue and color that I sought. Somehow, when I first viewed this text, I had missed the words that were bolded. There were three, wisdom, power, and eternity. This must be the three virtues. With this key, I could unlock the mapping that would allow me to speak a timbre with a virtue and hopefully gain from the captive cellist another fragment of the elusive grand chorale. I took the framed document from its place on the wall, and together we traveled back into the chamber. I positioned myself in between the cellist and the painting of the timbral spectrum, so that I could read the words and speak them for the benefit of the player. Looking at the first stanza, there was an obvious color connection of wisdom to sun-yellowed grass. Consulting the timbral spectrum, yellow was associated with the word spiccato. I spoke to the cellist. Spiccato for wisdom. The cellist raised his bow as if on cue and played a short sequence of music that was bright and lively. His bow bounced on the string with each note 
and seemed to dance through the short passage. Heart racing, I navigated the next thread that passed from power in the second stanza through the red tinctured teeth of the lioness. I spoke again, pizzicato for power, pizzicato being the text over the band of red. Without hesitation, the cellist began to produce a new passage of music that did not use his bow, but derived from the use of his index finger to pluck the strings. Not being a student of music or of string instruments, I had never encountered a cello being played like a guitar. This timbre, pizzicato, with this passage, sounded completely different from the bouncing bow of spiccato before. Now, for the third pairing, I drew from the bolded virtue, eternity, traced its ray through the violet wonders of radiant dusk, and found the timbre associated with violet in the leftmost position on the timbral spectrum. That timbre was harmonics, and I handed over the last pair to the cellist. Harmonics for eternity. As before, the cellist began to play. Returning to the use of the bow, this short passage had an otherworldly and disembodied sound. I approached the platform excitedly as he played and noticed a difference now not in his right hand, which held the bow, but in his left hand, whose fingers pushed on the strings. In the other passages, the fingers on his left hand would decisively push down on the string, making the vibrating length shorter or longer as his hand moved up and down the fingerboard. However, with this timbre, that is harmonics, he used his left hand as more of a fixed apparatus where the index finger would firmly press the string as before, but his pinky finger would delicately touch the string further down in a fixed proportion as his whole hand moved up and down the string. The effect of the sound on my ear was that of a delicate cobweb that existed of more air than substance. As the last of the evanescent tones evaporated, I heard the sound for which I had hoped, another click at my feet. As with the first musical part loosed by the playing of the violist, the part that appeared from the safe on the stage was reversible top to bottom, and it too bore the same title regardless of orientation the Grand Chorale. I set the music on the stand before the cellist, and I saw all three players mutely telegraph a heightened energy as they moved to the edge of their seats. Having placed it on the stand, I saw, to my great satisfaction, that the placard that the cellist's stand bore had imperceptibly changed from its prior inscription to now bear the same text as the violist's placard, the Grand Chorale. There was only one more part to liberate from the safe before our emancipation could be accomplished. One small strip of paper remained to be discovered. As with much of life, however difficult it had been to succeed to this point, the easiest part of the journey lay behind. I had just enjoyed a burst of success in Franklin's office, and this brought me to a point of unjustified certainty. I spent the next series of hours scouring both Franklin's office and the chamber for any sign of the final strip of encoded music. I looked under the desk, under the chair. I went through every book on the bookshelf. 
I took out the drawers from the desk and turned them in my hands over and over to no avail. I opened the small wooden door of the phone and peered into its shadowed and wire-filled interior. Nothing. At least three more times I felt down the frock coat, looking for a betrayal of contraband within. Nothing. In vain hope, I tried the music box on the pedestal by feeding it the strips that I did possess. The first and second created music that merged together, like coherent sentences that were leading to the full expression of a thought. But then, lacking the third, when I fed the fourth, it was immediately obvious that whatever that full expression might be, an essential portion had been unstated, and the fourth strip picked up awkwardly to finish without satisfaction. I looked under each of the benches in the hall. I walked around the platform where the players waited. I even examined the players themselves. Although they were mute, I had no confusion about their aggressive disinterest in my further exploration of their persons. I sat on the benches in the chamber and let out a groan of frustration and fear. I had no idea how long I had labored at this task. No idea what passage of time in the great wide world outside 25 Franklin Lane might have occurred. I collapsed with the weight of failure and exhaustion, and without warning, I slept. And that concludes Part 7 of The Golden Sparrow. Join us next time for the final installment, Part 8, where we hear how the adventure ends. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at Gustav Hoyer, Composer Impresario, or on Twitter, and you can also email me at salutations at gustavhoyer.com. I'd love to hear from you. I create this podcast to share my love of music, and your feedback helps me improve it. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time.